Welcome to the Permanent Wealth Podcast, where we explore the art of investing and personal finance. My name is Adam Walkham, and during this series, I will be interviewing a number of super smart people where we discuss the biggest issues in both investing and personal finance. Nothing contained within this podcast should be regarded as personal investment advice. The discussions within are for information and entertainment purposes only. If you have any questions on how any of this relates to your personal circumstances, please get in touch with a financial advisor. This episode is brought to you by Permanent Wealth Partners. Permanent Wealth Partners help career professionals such as lawyers, consultants, and bankers achieve a sense of profound financial peace through financial planning. Their clients achieve absolute clarity on their current and future financial positions, structural safety in terms of risk analysis and mitigation, and maximize growth opportunities through portfolio optimization. If any of those sound interesting to you, then get in touch with them at hello at permanentwealth.co.uk. That's hello at permanentwealth.co.uk, and they will see if they're the right fit for you. And now, on with the show. Hello, everybody. Thank you again for joining me. So today I've got a guest who I've been wanting to get on for a little while now. So this is Duncan McInnes. Uh, So Duncan is an investment director at Ruffer. He's also manager of the Ruffer Diversified Return Fund. And I'll let Duncan tell a little bit more about Ruffer because it's a fascinating, interesting company. I've got Duncan on today because Duncan manages as as part of the diversified return fund. This fund you would classify as as either a cautious or an absolute return fund. So why I wanted to get Duncan on today was well one of the many reasons was how they as a an absolute return fund manager are dealing in this current investment environment where bonds are very, very, very tricky. That's saying at, at least to try and make any money from with with in an interest rate rising environment. So, without further ado, Duncan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I like that you you said we were an interesting firm. I like to tell people my uh, Ruffer origin story. Oh, please. So do. how 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 I came to know about Ruffer? I graduated from from university and I joined the Barclays graduate scheme and went through the sort of standard training course and I landed on on the desk you know, to, to properly begin work about three, four weeks after Lehman Brothers went bust. <laughs> so so it was an interesting time to to join the industry. And I remember preparing for sort of one of the first ever meetings I was taken along to. And uh, and I looked at this this client's uh, portfolio. It was on a sort of wealth management portfolio management type role and desk. And every single holding in this poor client's portfolio was sitting at a loss, <laughs> apart from one. And the one was the rougher total return fund. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what it was, but I thought, well, that's interesting that they've done well. Um, and so I went on the you know, the website and read the commentary, read Jonathan's investment reviews and started following them from that point. And then four years later, sort of got in touch and asked nicely for a job. They actually rejected me. <laughs> and then six months later, they came back and uh, thankfully I, I snuck in the back door. Excellent. Excellent. And can you just give me a little bit of history or give, give us a little bit of history on, on Ruffer? And yeah. where it's sort of established, and and because yeah. it is quite quirky in terms of the investment management scene. Yeah, I think I think that's that's fair. So Jonathan Ruffer was the founder of the company. He's still still with us today. He was previously chief investment officer of Rathbones, and therefore he was used to managing private client money. 
and and he had a couple of insights that uh, back then were not that obvious and today are probably more accepted. And those those insights were first that the the industry, the asset management industry is obsessed with relative returns benchmarking, and therefore you know, we are deliberately unbenchmarked and, and go anywhere in our investment approach. And his second insight was very similar to Daniel Kahneman's prospect theory. So the way that Jonathan phrased it is that clients like making money, but they hate losing it more. And if you have that asymmetry to the experience of gains and losses, um, then you should sort of manage money with a with a Hippocratic Oath type approach. You know, first do no harm, first preserve capital, look after the downside. And so that's very much uh, how we do it. So back when Jonathan set up the firm in 1995, the idea of absolute return didn't didn't really exist. It certainly wasn't mainstream. And of course, uh, in the 27 years since then, it has become much more popular in the post-financial yeah. crisis period and then a little bit less popular in the last last few years as, frankly, so many of the absolute return funds in the market have failed to deliver. Well, that's that was the one I wanted to touch on because when, when I kind of first came across the, the fund industry, it was the Standard Life Gars Fund, which was this sort of, you know, put up as, as the holy grail of, of fund. And then that you know, that's almost had a, I mean, it's it's kind of had this sort of horrible period. I don't even know if it still exists, but it's just had this it, it horrible does. period yeah, yeah. of just terrible performance. The size of the fund, I think, is now less than a third of what it was. But what I guess what that shows is the absolute return is, is such a diverse environment and it's bloody tough. Yeah, I, I think there is a spectrum of complexity to the absolute return universe. Yes. So you have at one end what I call the quite vanilla absolute return products. And these are the ones that predominantly use you know, stocks, bonds, currencies, maybe a bit of gold. But effectively, you know, they're they're de-risking is is selling some equities and having cash instead. Yeah. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have much more complex derivative heavy hedge fund like vehicles and of course you know gars was was one of them yeah and you know each has their own benefits but of course the problem at the complex end is when things don't go well it's a bit of a black box mm, and and, it, and therefore that that can be quite scary and can start these sort of redemption runs that you you talk about i think we sit we sit somewhere in the middle yeah so uh, the vast majority of what we do is in the vanilla stuff. If you look at more than 90% of the portfolio is in stocks, bonds, currencies, gold, et cetera, you know, conventional assets. But we do have this, what we call our unconventional protective toolkit, uh, which although it's less than 10% of the portfolio is extremely important, we think, and more important you know, looking forward to create the differentiation, the diversification, the lack of correlation to conventional markets that we think is going to be uh, so so important yeah and and from from conversations previously with with other members of your firm the idea of for example the diversified return fund which is your publicly available fund on on platforms the replication of the overall strategy which you offer in terms of your hedge fund to institutional investors and professional investors from my understanding the the, the strategies are actually pretty similar Yes, yeah, they're they're very similar. So, firstly, I sh- I should say we we don't have a hedge fund. <laughs> we do, we don't we don't charge hedge fund fees, unfortunately. Okay. But we are um, a hedged fund. <laughs> so the strategy is is yep. 
edged and that is absolutely vital but we do try not to be sort of explicitly labeled as a hedge fund but anyway the, the rougher diversified return fund is exactly the same philosophy the same capital preservation all weather strategy it's the same process it's the same people there are some very small differences in terms of some of the individual instruments that we can own because yeah. because we have to have a daily you know daily dealing liquidity as opposed to some of the other um strategies which have less onerous requirements mm-hmm. but we we strenuously back tested and gave you know consideration to all of these risks before we launched the strategy if we didn't think we could do what we want to do then we just wouldn't wouldn't have done it and since launch uh, which is now 7 months ago the performance has been has been in line exactly with the other rougher strategies which you know thankfully are going quite well good and and before we get on to you know the current investing environment today can you just run through because looking through the history and, and the back testing around this fund a couple of really interesting things stand out is actually i think it was 2008 you made money which is really interesting yeah. um and the other one was 2000 i think it was 2011 when also everything got a bit shaky around greece you also made money so for those in those particular environments was there a particular vehicle that you used in those environments do you have a particular sort of playbook that when equity markets start to you know, really look shaky. We do. We use this, 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 and this. Or, or how did you know? How did you make money in those times? Yeah. So we're we're sort of known as bear market operators as a firm, and that's because we've made money in what I would call the three major crises since the firm began. So we we made money in in the dot com uh, bust. Yep. Um, when of course markets halved, we made money in the financial crisis. We were up twenty percent in 2008 when the market was down 30 yep. and we also made money in the covid crash when the market was down sort of 2025 yep. 2011 you're right that that also applies I, don't, I sort of don't really count that as one of the major yep. crises but we did um, we made money there too and in the 27 years that we've been going we've only had one negative calendar year so you know, how, how have we managed to do that and, and that that was 2018 and it was sort of minus five, minus 6%. So, yeah. And that was um, when everything collapsed in, in the last quarter as well that year. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a painful, painful memory. But we actually, if the year had ended on, on Christmas Eve, we would yeah. have been flat. <laughs> but it ended six days later ah. and we were down, down 5%. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so you know, how, how have we managed to weather all, all those different types of um, economic and market environments and, and do pretty well through them. I think the most important thing is, is that we set ourselves up to succeed by having that capital preservation first ben, um, objective and by being unbenchmarked. So having the flexibility to look anywhere in the world and own any asset uh, gives you much more in the way of options at your disposal to, right. to try and sidestep the, the most egregious areas of overvaluation or of uh, risk. And, and we've historically had a pretty good track record of identifying the fault lines and the fragilities in markets and being able to, to position to benefit from them. So you know, to go through different examples, in, in .com, for example, the, the market was, was very narrowly focused, of course, around technology stocks. And you could have avoided that crisis quite simply by just not owning them. And that's that's what we did. So in 1999, the market was very strong 
we were we were flat um, because we didn't have any of the sexy growth technology stocks. But when the market turned, uh, we were already positioned in what are called old economy stocks. And the, you know, the, the best example I can uh, think of is Weetabix. You know, <laughs> we, we, it's not listed anymore, but, but Weetabix was a holding for rougher back then. And Weetabix used to be listed. It did used to be listed, yeah. And and it's just yeah, you know, just a perfect example of a Who very Weetabix now question. I can't remember because it was taken private probably in two thousand five right, yeah. or six. So so Weetabix, you know, t- typical example of a very mm-hmm. boring consumer staple stock that went from extremely unfashionable to fashionable yeah. as the as the market fell uh, and the dot com bubble burst. So so just not owning the um, most uh, overvalued parts of the market can can help. Yeah. Um, similarly, coming into the financial crisis, we didn't own any banks, we didn't own any commodity stocks, any property stocks. So that helped enormously, but also being able to position ourselves on the other side of the the mania. So. We had um, a large amount of the portfolio in conventional government bonds because, of course, yeah. interest rates were slashed coming into the crisis, and also being on the other side of the carry trade. So we had large allocations to the Japanese yen and to the Swiss franc. Mm-hmm. And what had been going on in the run-up to the financial crisis, as you, you know, is uh, people had been using those very low interest rate currencies to borrow in, to yep. speculate in higher yielding currencies in emerging markets and so on. As the crisis happened, all those loans had to be repatriated, and you had huge forced buying of those yeah. those um, currencies, and and so that really helped the portfolio. In 2020, it was a completely different sort of toolkit that was required to survive the COVID COVID yeah. crash. So there, we had a pretty low equity weighting, so that helped. But it was it was that unconventional toolkit that I mentioned earlier that was essential then. So right. we benefited from volatility call options put options on the equity market and what we call credit protection, which yeah. are in effect sort of shorts on corporate bonds and high yields. Um, you're betting the borrowing costs will will rise. So I guess what we have so, is... Is that using CDS, you mean? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. CDS and or options on uh, the high yield bond and, and investment grade indexes. Okay. So I think we have we have this philosophy or process that, that allows us to identify that where the risks are, yeah, it definitely seems to be the case that the the tools which you will need to use to perform well in the crisis always changes. It's never you know, history repeats, but it doesn't rhyme. No, that's that's really interesting. And so, just to clarify, do you ever take any equity short positions? Not in the sense of borrowing the stock and selling it short, but we yeah. do. Bet, you know, we can bet that equity prices will fall via the use of put options. Uh, yeah, fine. So that's actually, it's still, yeah, fine. So you're still long, you are long gamma in that way. Yeah. And, and in fact, this, this year is, um, you know, to t- touch wood, we're only four months in, in, into the year, but this is uh, this year is going quite well too. We're sort of up around uh, 5% this year, which is, which is quite rare. <laughs> As we are all well aware, you know, stocks are down, Private equities down, venture capitals down, bonds are down. There's there's a lot of assets that are down, and not much is up apart from commodities. So, it's been a really interesting year in the equity market, in particular, because we've made money on both sides of the book. Yeah. So on, on on the long side, we have been long value and particularly energy and financials. Yeah. Which have done well because the oil price has gone up and because interest rate expectations have gone up. But on the protective shorter side of the book. 
we came into the year short uh, via puts uh, profitless tech mm-hmm. and then we monetized them in late january in february we were concerned about the rising tensions on the border of ukraine so we moved the equity put protection to the dax and to european banks mm-hmm. and through february because of the invasion and, and rising recession risk in europe that was you know, the right place to be mm-hmm. we monetized them and as of right now our put protection is on what could broadly sort of be described as the largest tech companies yeah. uh, and that's because they they're sort of the the last edifice holding the market up at this stage mm-hmm. and and volatilities is, is pretty low there compared to the rest of the market so it's it's quite a rare scenario where you make money on the long book and the short book at the same time. Yeah. Well, it's it's the market considering the market environment at the moment is so choppy in a lot of ways, and it's interesting. I, I'm kind of I'm, as you're saying this, I'm thinking about this and the ability to make money during a crisis as such. And remember, going into these crises, no one knows it's going to be a crisis until yeah. it, until it bang, you know, everything's just hits you in the face. But I guess from I'm just thinking about the fundamental structure going back to the original ethos of the of the fund, which is you know first capital preservation. The principal advantage of that is just the fact you don't need to chase anything. Yes. Yeah. If you see it's not even bubbles. It's if if you see heat and exuberance, there is no need to go and actually participate in that for the growth because Ultimately, it's it's that over exuberance which has basically then come back, and, and, and that's where people have ended up lost, losing money in these three environments. The one exception being COVID twenty twenty, where frankly everything went down well for a month or so. Well, actually, just just on on that, that's true. Everything did go down, but that's why that unconventional protective toolkit was so important well, because yeah, everything because, went down except volatility. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, pretty, pretty much volatility and credit spreads. Yeah, credit spreads went up. So that increasing cross asset correlation mm. is is one of the you know sorry fa- fancy fancy phrase there. <laughs> um, the fact that all assets are increasingly moving in the same direction yep. and diversification is much much harder to find is, is becoming a chronic problem. You know, so, so it felt acute in March 2020, but look at look at the quarter that's just finished. Yeah, every, every everything was down apart yeah. from commodities, and and so that is that is the biggest challenge uh, amongst a suite of pretty large challenges that investors are currently facing. And you know, we we think we've got some pretty good answers to it, but it's not it's not easy. And how much with that? You know, the idea of in ex- times of extreme stress, correlation cross asset correlation goes to one. You know. Yeah. And everything just falls. How much of that do you put down to a you know the current market position or current market environment in terms of you know very low base rates, etc., or b down to the increased use of algorithmic trading and algos kicking off when they see things and bam, 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 just automatic trades being put on because x you know equals y in terms of their formula. Yeah, I think I I mean that that's I don't have a specific answer for you, but I think the increasing use of rules-based or algorithmic-based trading, you know, vol targeting being one specifically problematic issue there. You know, the, the, there's a lot of strategies out there that manage a, a lot of money mm-hmm. where when volatility goes up, the the machine just says right, de-risk and de-risk yeah. means sell everything across the board. 
So yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a factor. It's also probably the the macroeconomic environment to some degree as well. You know, yeah. Done a lot of work on the stock bond correlation, stocks and bonds negatively correlated for most of the last forty years. That is why that 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 uh, relationship is the the foundational cornerstone of modern portfolio construction. Yeah, and we think it's we think it's wrong. <laughs> we think it's changed. So if you look at Rather than 40 years, if you look at 140 years of data, you see that most of that time, stocks and bonds were positively correlated. They moved in the same direction. Yep. And they also, if you break the data up by, by the inflationary environment, when inflation is above three, stocks and bonds move in the same direction. They're positively correlated. That's the environment that we're in today. And lo and behold, they are moving in the same direction. And that direction is down. No, I, I'm so pleased you've, you've raised this because this is something I've been, frankly, <laughs> bashing my head against a wall. Because we're coming in from a, you know, coming in from a, I'm talking about from a regulatory perspective and from a, a compliance perspective in terms of what, frankly, the retail advice community have bashed over their heads with in terms of asset, you know, here. Mr. Client, complete this attitude to risk question. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's surprise, surprise, yeah. you come out as balanced because you've just, you know, fallen in the middle of yeah. bell curve. Oh, look, that's a 60, you know, balance says 60 40, you know, 60% equity, 40% bonds. Oh, let's just put you in there and just forget about it. And I've, from, from my, my from a, an advisor's yeah, perspective, that's ticked, your duty. <laughs> that ticked all the compliance boxes. Yes. I'm happy. And they're like, oh, really sorry, Mr. Client, you've lost money. It's like, oh, I just, yeah. I literally just, cool. I'm wrapping my head around just how can I, you know, of my my principal factor is, is where I do not want my clients to lose money. Yeah. So I am pushing up against the FCA and, and, the, and the regulators in terms of what you've described there in terms of the risk questionnaire is wrong. That doesn't yeah. work today. So two, two things I'd say to that. The first is I think you're absolutely right. This, so we... We only have one approach. We don't do risk profiling. Jonathan Ruffer always uses the the old Henry Ford. You can have any color car you want so long as it's black. Mm. Uh, that's you come to Ruffer, you get the Ruffer portfolio because we think that we we are paid to take the risks. It is a job that the investor has outsourced to us to determine whether or not it is a good environment to be taking risk and what type of risk we should be taking. And you're right. This this risk profiling obsession that the industry has but because of regulatory um, reasons and it's, it's well-intentioned regulation does have the unfortunate consequence given the current market setup and the, the current valuation setup and the current macroeconomic setup of herding the least risk tolerant investors and you know, the low risk investors into what could ultimately be what Russell Napier calls the, the killing pen of fixed income <laughs> you're, you're you're herding investors into bonds that offer negative real returns and might offer negative real returns for the coming decades. And you're doing that to the people who are least capable or least tolerant of those risks. So that's that's a big problem. But then of course, you know, Tina, there is no alternative. What 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 else can you do? You can't take the uh, 80-year-old widow with her portfolio that she cannot afford to lose and stick it all in equities either. You know, there's, yeah. it's not like there's a very obvious alternative solution for these, for these people. And that's, that's why 
that's why multi-asset investing is as difficult as it's ever been. Yeah. And the, sec- the second point I was going to make is the, you know, the, the problems of the balanced portfolio. So, so everyone I think now accepts it has been uh, written to death by us and many others that the 60-40 is, is seriously challenged. Mm. And so people say, ah, oh, but I don't have a 60-40. I have a balanced portfolio. Mm. And, uh, and, and I've had this conversation so many times in the first quarter. So they say, I don't have 60% in equities. I've diversified my equities into private equity, right. venture equity. <laughs> and uh, I sort of say, well, the clue is in the name. Yeah. <laughs> it's still it's still equity. It's still uh, subject to all the same underlying economic risks as as equity. With one exception, and that's mark to market. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exa- exactly. Uh, and that that's not even um, a sort of dirty secret anymore. Yeah. I think the, um, the CalPERS CEO, I, th- I think it was the C- CIO of CalPERS. It might, might not be, so I apologize if it isn't. But he basically said, you know, I'm delighted that uh, I don't have to mark my private equity to, to market. It's got a better sharp ratio than the listed market. <laughs> I've it's, heard many, many times people say that's why actually it, frankly, almost deserves to trade at a premium. Yeah, because it helps their sharp ratio, which is sort of... Because it has this built, doesn't mark to market. Yeah. Oh, you've, we've had a bad quarter, whatever. Let's just let's leave, yeah. it, let's leave it at book value for a little bit longer. Yeah. And on, on the bond side of the balanced portfolio, people say, well, of course, bonds are extremely expensive. So don't worry. I've diversified into investment grade bonds, high yield bonds, infrastructure assets and renewable assets. And and my counter to that would be that is that is probably better. It probably is a positive step, but you're certainly getting a yield pickup there. But you also have to appreciate that you're taking considerably more risk than you are with sovereigns. And ultimately, it's it's all duration. It's all sensitive to changes in in interest rates. And as we were talking about just before we sort of pressed record, interest rates sort of look like a one-way bet at the moment for the foreseeable future. And so if bond if, if interest rates go up, bond yields go up, I would think that the private credit, renewables, infrastructure assets of the world are all pretty vulnerable. Yeah. I was looking at a couple of infrastructure funds, which just in the last month, you know, we're sort of sitting there flat, 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 flat. In the last month, they're up 10%. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I get it. I understand why. But you just think when if you see something move ten percent in a month, that's where alarm bells start going off. To think, mm, okay, maybe there's a little more something in there that we need to, you know, maybe that 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 trade's already happened. So just just talking on interest rates for a second. So at the moment, so we're recording this on the fourteenth of April. The UK printed seven percent CPI yesterday. The US did eight point five. Was it? Uh, I, think it was, I think it was 8.5 earlier in the week. And the forecast is at the moment, according to the, the Fed Fund, I think it's Fed Fund Futures, that the interest rates are going to go up eight times for the balance of the year, which we let's, let's call it one a month. So I don't know. Are we getting to the point where this is just kind of now overdone when, because we now know that actually, look, the economies around the world are slowing What's what's Ruffers and, and your view around that? So, it, just so so much to say. Say it's yeah. hard to know where to start. So I think that the raising interest rates has never really been on the agenda. You know, for a decade they've been trying to create inflation yeah. to solve the problem of too much debt in the world, and 
now they've got inflation, but a, a little bit like sort of tomato ketchup from a glass bottle. They've got way too much inflation, way too, way too, way too soon. You know, they didn't get just the right amount. And the level of inflation that we now have has probably crossed over into a level that is uncomfortable. You know, we have what I think could rightly be called a cost of living crisis in the UK and the changes in food prices and so on are going to be extraordinarily challenging for um, the developing world and so on. So, so we do have a we have a real inflation problem in the world all of a sudden. And I I think that when faced with with the cost of living crisis on the front page, if policymakers and you know that's governments and central banks have to sacrifice investor portfolios, which have done so well over the last few decades, on the altar of inflation and higher interest rates yeah. to tackle that problem, then so be it. You know, they, they will they will absolutely choose the man on the street that is suffering over preserving portfolios. So we we do seem to be in a world and and we've got there very quickly. This I was very open-minded about this four or five months ago. But they do seem to be intent to raise interest rates to try and tackle, to try and tackle inflation, and it looks like they're going to go pretty, pretty hard at it in in the coming months. Now, I sort of joke that it's a little bit like going on a diet. It's it's very easy to talk about going on a diet. It's quite hard to actually do it. And once they start to raise interest rates, there will be consequences. Your things will start to break in a very highly leveraged global economy and particularly financial system yep. and it will be interesting to see um, how they react to those pain points so our sort of general view would be that yes the economy is slowing yes the awful situation in ukraine has has increased recession risk significantly from versus a few months ago but our contention has been that especially the us economy which is pretty insulated from the ukraine situation yep. is strong enough to deal with the higher interest rates. The problem is that the market maybe is not. Yep. So, so I think we reach a, a pain point in the markets considerably before we reach a pain point in the economy. And that will test the resolve of the central bankers as to whether they actually do care more about Main Street than Wall Street, mm. which is currently, I would guess, that that, that is the case. Yeah. I think there's also going to be, I, I, look, I, I totally agree. Um, with your points. And I think there's also going to be very interesting in terms of the the CPI figures that are going to come out because, as we know, CPI, the, the, the headline figure is done on a year-on-year basis. And the, the base effects are really going to start helping as opposed to yeah. hindering over the last three months as because in 2021 march 2021 we were still basically locked down april may june lockdown started to ease particularly in the uk so if we get a benefit of we we might be in this rather bizarre situation where frankly prices won't have come down yet the inflation figure will be lower yeah and it's it will be very interesting to see how that is spun politically because it will yeah. be spun politically yeah well, well, it's already been spun in the US. Putin's price rises. Putin's price hike, exactly. Putin's price hike. I mean, it's just, it, it beggars belief, but hey, you know, what's going to be really interesting with the idea that they can start in the next few months, they could start pointing to inflation falling. Yes. But that is just the inflation number falling because of the base rate. 
because of the base level, as opposed to prices coming down. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a sort of it's a sophistry of economists, isn't it? Uh, you know, just very simply, pre-COVID, the price of a pint of beer was four quid, mm-hmm. and now it's six quid or something like that. So yeah. the price the price has gone up dramatically. Uh, clearly, it depends where you go. Che- cheaper beers are available, but. Um, not Richmond, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know the the price has gone up dramatically, and if it only goes up by four percent next year, then you know it'll be six pounds twenty four, six pounds twenty five, yeah. and the Bank of England will say, "See, we've tamed inflation," and and it will. The, the price level is what comes out of people's pockets. Yeah. And you know, I watched a really grim but informative panorama last night about the cost of living crisis you know how it's affecting sort of average families and when you only have a few hundred pounds a month of disposable income for energy price hikes and by by petrol um increases but it's the level that they care about and unless the level goes down then the only other sort of variable is that their income has to change so first first of all it's, it's worth saying that we're known as an inflation house we've talked about inflation a lot for the last few years but actually it's it's a little bit more complicated than that. Inflation has has just about peaked at the moment, and in the coming months we will start to see lower numbers. But as if if and when we get to the point where there's a recession or, or a significant slowdown, we think it will be met by greater fiscal stimulus, and then we'll be back to sort of another inflationary impulse. What what would I like to know to try and forecast how long this inflationary impulse will continue? The first probably Russia Ukraine, so. Um, a ceasefire tomorrow would be you know, great from a humanitarian perspective, but it would also be very helpful from a commodity price perspective. Commodities would would presumably come off, supply chains would be less disrupted, so that that would that would help end the uh, the inflationary problem in the short term. And then the second one, and I think this is this is the thing that that seems to be gathering momentum, is to what extent the inflationary pressures feed through into the labour market and into wages. And we're unequivocally seeing that now across across the board. So you have all the big employers like Tesco, Amazon, Walmart, FedEx, talking about the difficulty of securing labor, raising the wages for, for staff that they do have. And you know, that's a reflection of a very tight jobs market. So if people can, can push through wage hikes, then that does allow, it slightly solves that that compression in their disposable income and the cost of living crisis and it probably allows the inflationary um, impulse to continue to, to work its way through the economy okay so if we flip that around a little bit and say you know, clearly with the cost of living crisis you know the idea of those that single mother lives living with two kids in a flat yep. all of a sudden their disposable income is falling through the floor you know they what they thought was spare money just no longer is no longer spare money so and if that particular person cannot get a wage increase because they're on fixed contracts or they're on hourly rates and yeah. they're not going up you know as a read through for the rest of the economy what well, what is your view on on that read through if we if, we don't yeah i mean let's let's actually just just and i'm sure i'll miss some out here but it's there's so many angles to this cost of living crisis. So, so you've yeah. got, of course, you've got energy bills, you've got petrol. If you drive a car, you have the national insurance hike, 
you have you know, dividend tax going up on self-employed people, no. you have food prices going up, uh, rents are going up or house prices are going up, interest rates are going up. So if you've got a mortgage, a variable mortgage or any consumer debts, price of that is going up. In the last couple of weeks, Netflix, Vodafone, The Telegraph, you know, all, all of my Spotify, all of my sort of subscription services have all gone up. It, so you, you're absolutely right. Whatever disposable income you had has had an, an enormous chunk take, mm. taken out of it. And it's, it's not rocket science, is it? That that means that the you know, your average family that might at the weekend have gone bowling and gone to Nando's or McDonald's or you know, the cinema or whatever, those trips don't happen anymore. Yep. It, I mean, I think it's just as simple as that. And, yep. and that's why, having been pretty bullish on the prospects for domestic UK assets, you know, UK small cap, UK mid-sized companies, mm. they, were very, they are and were very attractively valued. There was a, a clear buyer in private equity. You know, we've seen record amounts of M&A in that sector over the last couple of years. I was very keen on them. But given the, the change in the macro environment in the last few months, yes, they still remain cheap assets. Yes, that buyer is there, but the operating environment for those sorts of businesses is really deteriorating. However, that is being reflected in the prices. If you look, if you look at the 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 12 month relative lows, you know, which which stocks have underperformed the UK market, it's filled with what were previously the sort of COVID reopening winners, you know, things like Weatherspoons or or DIY, you know, Howdens and, and that sort of company. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And in, all right, so that's the UK. And I would imagine, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I imagine the rest of Europe is probably facing similar issues. How much of that is actually then reflected in the US as well for the for the all important US consumer? I think the the US is in a slightly better position. So we've clearly lived through a decade where the idea of US exceptionalism sort of dominated markets. They've had all the best, um, all the best companies uh, for the most part. They've always traded at higher valuations, and it's always felt like every crisis has had a shape to it that has allowed the US to come out of it better, be it faster monetary policy response or, or whatever. And it looks like this is another one that, yeah. that the US has is slightly better better positioned for because it has further distance between it and, and Russia and Ukraine. It's not reliant upon commodities from Russia and Ukraine. The the nature of the US is that it's such a large economy that it can be effectively self-sufficient. You know, it produces more oil than it consumes, energy independent. It has uh, soft commodity independence to a large degree too. And I guess there's just less at the moment of a cost of living squeeze there than there is elsewhere. But you know, there's there's still significant inflationary pressure there. You know, CPI CPI is eight, so I think they're not they're not out of the woods. But as of right now, it's it's a better place, and also their their growth picture at the moment is slightly better. Their wage growth picture is slightly better too. So they are ahead of the curve, I would say. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting, and so. As as I'm hearing you talk through this, if we have with the idea, well, if we have this sort of significant consumer slowdown, which it really does feel as though is coming, consumer balance sheets were okay, especially post COVID, but they have been kind of 
reduce that propensity, that household savings ratio has been considerably reduced over time. I mean, I think the same is in the US. Corporate balance sheets generally are pretty healthy. Would you agree? In terms of, I, I think I think with with all with all these things, the average is somewhat misleading. Okay. You have the figures are are slightly stale, but if you look at the S and P. If you aggregate the S and P and you look at the cash balance, mm. a, an enormous percentage of that comes from basically the the Fang plus yeah. Microsoft stocks, yeah. and the rest of the corporate balance sheets aren't as net cash as you would as you would think. And the same sort of applies with the distribution. When you talk about consumer balance sheets, as we all know, wealth is very unequally distributed through the economy, and you have an enormous proportion of the population that has almost no savings, and then you have then you have the sort of one percent who have a vast amount of money. Yeah. Okay. But, but yeah, I mean, we we don't as of right now we don't have sort of huge worries about corporate balance sheets. Uh, there is a problem of the last decade corporates have been encouraged to take on as much debt as possible because rates have been very low. Rates are now going to start going up, so debt service is going to become much more of an issue for yep. corporates and for and for consumers you know, eventually as they as as they have to roll over debt as it expires so that's definitely something to to look out for okay so all right so that's that's really helpful that's great so just changing tax slightly and just going back to rougher i mean rougher was sort of famous or perhaps infamous for a significant bitcoin bet uh, and trade bet or trade back we prefer trade to bet. <laughs> Bitcoin, it could be anything. Uh, a Bitcoin trade back in, well, it was, it was a year or two. It was probably a couple of years ago now, maybe. Anyway, so there was, and there's numbers in terms of, obviously, no one quite knows the real number, uh, but it was a substantial trade uh, which was very successfully done in terms of there was in, there was an out, you bought, you sold for a lot higher than you bought and walked away. Great. So without talking about that specifically, but in more, you know, that is a fairly, from my understanding, that was the first major substantial investment by a UK-based fund into crypto and Bitcoin as a pure investment. Can you talk me through a bit around the thinking around that and by further extension, the thinking around crypto uh, and how either you and or Rafa view this space as an asset class? Okay, there's a, there's a lot in there. There's a lot to say. Uh, so deep breath. So I think that what you said is is all about correct. So we have followed Bitcoin for for many years, mostly with some sort of morbid curiosity, you know, particularly around the bubble of 2017 and and so on. But I think COVID changed a lot. You know, we we were all locked down. Uh, the, so so the digitization of everything was very much a trend. The huge monetary and fiscal policy response. The inflationary impulse all made the idea of a sort of digital gold much more plausible. So we gained our exposure in November 2020 at, at around $15,000. And we, we put uh, 2% of our client portfolios into that. And we exited in April 2021. And um, the last sales were the same week as Elon Musk was on Saturday Night Live and the Coinbase IPO. Mm-hmm. I came to market and that felt a lot like a top. It was around $60,000 and we had been selling on the way up. So we didn't sell at all at $60,000. And yeah, the, the numbers as reported in the press, we made we made about a billion sterling for, for our clients. 
So that was a great, great result. And, and we got a lot of flack, I would say, from people who you know, from the people who weren't into the idea of Bitcoin. And at, firstly, I'd say, even if you don't like Bitcoin, and there's perfectly reasonable reasons for that, I think it's the kind of thing that as an investor in Ruffer, you should want us to do because we're it's a good example of us using that flexible mandate, the unbenchmarked approach to its fullest extent yeah. um, and, and being willing to push the bounds and do unconventional things to try and achieve our investment objectives. So wh- why did we decide to sell? Well, we, we bought it as a sort of an option on, on, on its future as a digital gold. You know, we don't think Bitcoin is digital gold today, but I think that narrative is very useful in, in that it has the potential to become something like digital gold. Yeah. But of course, it doesn't have gold's thousand-year track record, and therefore it is only a possibility that it becomes digital gold in the future. And as the price rose many fold, then of course the market's factoring in a higher probability of that success. And frankly, it, it started behaving more like a NASDAQ. You know, the correlation with the NASDAQ started increasing, and that, that still applies today. I yep. think Bitcoin's correlation to the NASDAQ has never been higher than in the last sort of couple of months. So where, where, where to go from here? I mean, I, I think, would we do it again? Uh, so we, do, we don't have any exposure uh, mm-hmm. today. We haven't had any since April 2021. It's certainly not particularly attractive at the moment, at this exact minute, but I think it. we would like to think it could be on the menu in future if, if yeah. the price changes or if the, the current sort of macroeconomic setup changes. But what I think about it right now, I, th- I think the most useful analogy is is to compare it to the dot-com bubble in in 1999. So back then, the most bullish people that you could have spoken to about the prospects of the internet actually understated the true potential of the internet. I mean, it really did did change the world and had a profound effect on on everyone's lives. Um, Just like 1999 today, there are tens of billions of dollars of venture capital money being poured into the crypto space to build out companies and apps and coins. It also is attracting some of the best talent out of universities, out of the large US tech companies to go and sort of work on this new frontier uh, and try and build these world-changing companies. So the, the chances that something or several things that result in spectacular success 10 or 20 years from now, I think it is pretty high. It might be Bitcoin, it might be other things. However, just like the 1999 analogy, all of that was true, but it didn't stop investors losing an awful lot of money between 1999 and 2003. And investors in Amazon, if you bought Amazon in 1999, you lost as much as 95% of your money in, in the following three years, despite owning a company that would go on to be uh, to be world beating, so that that's I think a very useful analogy. And of course, we're we're speaking today with central banks making a lot of noises and starting the tightening process. I think it's fair to say that crypto has been one of the biggest beneficiaries of money printing and easy monetary policy in the last couple of years. Yeah. And that tide is going into reverse. Rates are going up. Quantitative easing is becoming quantitative tightening. I think crypto, Bitcoin will be one of the most vulnerable areas of the market if that if that persists, which we expect it to do. Yeah. No, I look, I I frankly it's it's I, I kind of agree with basically everything you've just said there in terms of and what was I found I found most interesting was the very 
in the very first sentence when you describe Bitcoin, you use the phrase digital gold, which I think Bitcoin especially has got to that point because from nothing more than forget the technical side and potentially, yes, the limited supply, but it is now a brand. Bitcoin is a brand. Bitcoin now is quoted in terms of what's the S&P done, what's the oil price done, what's gold done, what's Bitcoin done. You know, yeah. Bitcoin is mentioned in that. And, and once it has established itself in the minds as a brand of a source of value. Now, people argue always, I mean, on a millisecond by millisecond basis, what is that value? And that's for the market yeah. to decide. And gold is exactly the same. And There's a useful concept called the um, the Lindy effect, which is, is in a lot of sort of Bitcoin literature. I'll slightly butcher this description, but basically it was in relation to uh, plays or, or shows on Broadway. Uh-huh. And what, what was observed was that if a show makes it through its first run, it's highly likely to get a second run. Yeah. And the longer a show has been around, the more likely it is to endure for a longer period. So gold has, of course, endured for thousands of years. Bitcoin has now endured for, what is it, tw- uh, 13 years. And mm. um, you know, each additional period of survival, I think, vastly increases the probability that Bitcoin is here to stay. Yeah. And a couple of years ago, it was a legitimate conversation to talk about, well, what if Bitcoin goes to zero? I, I think that that is now pretty unlikely because, as you say, at least it is now a sort of permanent fixture of the macro trading toolkit you know it, it is a price that everyone looks at to uh, infer you know what the market is thinking with regards to a bunch of things be that technology or be that inflation or or you know a demand for safe havens or, or whatever mm. no I like I and I think the other analogy that I, I heard um Raul Powell use on yeah. Railism was talking about and it was not sorry Bitcoin but it was talking about the rest of the crypto space is Metcalf's law yeah which is around the network effect and when when you get another user, every every user you get actually is an exponential growth because yeah. it's not one plus one because it's another one, but that one then interacts with every other user. So you're multiplying the whole network effects. And I found well, it's that like, it's like social media. I mean, the down the skeptics would say that is also its sort of Ponzi or pyramid selling like characteristic. But yeah. you, you, <laughs> but I, I don't I don't think that's true but that is that is what the cynics would say yeah no it's, i think it's and it look this i think i'm i'm fascinated by it because i think it is the biggest fundamental shift we have had in call it finance in the last i mean it's almost since michael milken and his junk bonds uh and all you know all we could have we could put in cdos in there but they didn't work out so well but you know it's it's is i just think about it is bitcoin and, and crypto in general is it going to be bigger or smaller than today in ten years' time? I mean, it's it's pretty obvious what that answer is going to be. I think I think that's right. The the danger is, are today's major coins like Bitcoin or Ethereum, are they the equivalent of buying Ask Jeeves and Lycos <laughs> rather than Google and Pets.com? That, that, that's on, the on all of those. And I think you know where the another way I think about it is with you've got like every bubble you have the hype that starts with but every bubble as it deflates the assets come back to utility value in terms of actually what use are they like amazon for example is a classic amazon was a boom like everything else was boom and then it came back to you as the boom deflated it comes back to utility value which is actually what 
forget the hype, is this thing useful? Yeah. And Amazon was useful. Ask Jeeves, well, just got taken over by Google, so it wasn't useful anymore. And, and so as these things come back to utility value, and what I find really interesting looking at the rest of the coin suite in terms of particularly around their, you know, Ethereum, and, and frankly, Ethereum generates revenue, which is, you know, remarkable. And they're actually quite high fees to actually use in use Ethereum. And there's a Avalanche and all these others actually have a revenue generating tool because they generate fees. So I think that's another way to think about it in terms of once we get back to this, so the hype blows up, we get back to utility value. And then if there is, if that utility value and that actually fundamental business case and user case is there, that's when you'll see that next to go. But I, look, you know, we can speculate till the cows come home, but I think it's it's very interesting to hear that. Great. Okay. So just kind of bringing up, you know, coming to a close, and I ask this question for all my um, professional investors, and because I find this part fascinating. So for you, you know, for example, what have you learned in your lifetime of investing and with markets that is either totally contrary or just not mentioned in investment textbooks or classes or literature? That's a pretty. That's a pretty tough question. I mean, I think that the one of the one of the earliest things that you that you learn when you start doing this as a job is that you know, effectively, but by the time something seems like a good idea in the mainstream, it's probably too late. <laughs> and and you know, but, but Bitcoin just we were just talking about it is one of the most obvious examples of that. You know, by the time the hype hits the mainstream, the, the the opportunity is is possibly gone, and therefore you know your attention should be focused on. Areas where people are not looking. I suppose a sort of twist on that is I like the idea of playing easy games. So you will struggle to find a field that is more competitive than than asset management, fund management, hedge funds, etc. It, it because the potential for compensation is so high, it attracts an extraordinary number of very very intelligent, hardworking people, uh, and it's also just a fascinating job, which which helps. And therefore, you know, beating the market is is remarkably difficult. So, how can you help yourself in that thankless task? Well, you can you can look at or play in the pools with slightly less competition. So, for example, it is it is considerably easier to find a market beating stock in UK small caps than it is to outperform the S and P, yeah, because there's just uh, an order of magnitude or several orders of magnitude less people. Meeting those companies. Another sort of wrinkle I find interesting is that people focus on on the income statement, you know, revenues and profitability a lot, and pay far less attention to balance sheets. And that means that often assets on balance sheets are are mispriced or or just ignored. Yeah. And then also, and I, I do think this sort of comes with experience. You know, once you once you've put in your ten thousand hours, I think that Malcolm Gladwell idea of ten thousand hours, which which applies to anything from you know why is Cristiano Ronaldo good at football? Well, because he he did his ten thousand hours probably by the time he was seventeen. Um, so so once once you have put in your ten thousand hours of hard work and and learning, then you you can sort of develop to some degree, a, a spidey sense of, of things. You, when you have a really strong conviction on something, which doesn't happen often, mm-hmm. because this there is no more humbling game <laughs> than, than investing. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you, when you're, you're proven wrong by the market on a daily basis, 
But when you do have a really strong conviction, you can sort of feel it. And that tends to, um, in my experience anyway, has, has um, you know, is something you should be listening to. Yeah. I think the most thinking about my own personal decision-making, when I have changed my mind on something, yeah. you know, effectively going from bull to bear or bear to bull, have been the most successful investments I've ever made. And, and, and Bitcoin is one obvious example of that, where I was hugely skeptical yeah. um, from, say, 2017 until 2020, and then changed my mind. Yep. Interesting. And I, I guess that uh, that last point gets into the, the sell decision of, of any asset and any successful investment you hold. It's hard enough to get winners, but when you get winners, you know, it's that the, the determination of what that winner is and the scale of that winner is determined by A, the size of the investment in there in terms of how big you've gone and, and B, the sale. And so- Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that is, that's so true. I, I think it, so much of the learning that we try and do, that the teaching and the learning, um, informal or formal, is about the buy decision. Yep. And what, what you buy. Everyone talks about what you buy but just as important are, are the two things you just said. How much do you buy? You know, not just what you own, but how much of it do you own? The position sizing, and then what or how drives the sale decision? You know, how how, how does that happen? And that, that gets far less uh, attention in in the majority of investment processes. And that's why it's a bloody tough game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. why it's bloody hard. And that's why it's just, you know, the classic quote to be a professional investor. I think it's Warren Buffett quote. That you are competing against the most highly intelligent, highly incentivized people in the world. And when if you're playing poker and you look around, you can't work out <laughs> who, who the patsy is and you can't work it out and within the first five minutes. Guess what? You're the patsy. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Let's, I mean, let's... What better way to finish than on sort of Buffett quotes? Because mm. he said it better than everyone. So I, I strongly believe, though, that he, he in, in another theory of his, which is that investing is a game where the person with 120 IQ can beat the person with 150 IQ yep. if they have better emotional intelligence or can better uh, harness their their own emotions. You can be as clever as you like, but if you can't sort of hold through volatility or grit your teeth and buy when the market's down 25%, then it doesn't really matter how clever you are. Yeah. And then, you know, to, to sum it all up, I actually, I thought this was a Buffett quote, but I've, I've been told it's actually Richard Oldfield's uh, is that, you know, it's, it's simple, but not easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, that, that's, uh, that sums it all up. It's, I like it. Yeah. I mean, right if you buy, buy, buy cheap assets and hold them for a long time, you'll probably do quite well, but that's, a lot harder than it sounds <laughs> absolutely absolutely duncan i think we'll, we'll leave it there look thank you so much for your time that's been really fascinating and I, i've certainly enjoyed it if anyone wants to learn more about rougher or or you or the fund what's the best way to kind of do that well so we've got a, a website where we publish copious amounts of research and thought pieces which we which we share for free so that's one place to start. And on, on the website, you can find contact details for, for well, for, for me or for anyone else that you might want to speak to. Awesome. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Duncan. All the best. And look look forward to getting you back on. That'll be yeah. great. Thanks very much, Adam.